back to the Leadership Project. This is your host, Charles Smith. And on today's episode, I'm sitting down with Russell Moore, author, public theologian, and president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, to talk about the intersection of identity, integrity, and leadership. This reality that who we are, who you are, shapes what you do and how those two realities hold us together, not only in life, but also in leadership. And in this episode, we also discuss why patience is so important, why critical seasons of leadership are often marked by loneliness, why every successful Christian will die of failure, and how to give a godly rebuke. You know, as a former professor and pastor of mine, and as my wife's former boss, there aren't many individuals that have influenced my life as deeply as Dr. Russell Moore. This conversation was a blessing to me, and I pray it will be to you as well. Welcome to The Leadership Project. Here's Russell Moore. If you think about what integrity means, it means a holding together. And even the language that we sometimes uh, use, we'll talk about somebody um, is cracking up or uh, had a breakdown or I feel like I'm falling apart or falling to pieces or, or that, that sort of language. We, we kind of have an image in our mind of what it means to break down and integrity means to hold together so that everything is being held uh, together. And I think that that for a Christian, that comes down to a recognition of who you are in Jesus Christ and how you're held together uh, in Christ. And I think that's what um, that, that's what has really been a two things that have been difficult for me. I think that first part is something that I've been reminding myself of constantly ever since I was. Uh, a Christian is the the understanding of how I relate to God in Christ and who I am in Christ and how God views me in Christ. But the the second thing is seeing. So one of the really disappointing things about being in Christian leadership is being close in to a lot of things that you wish you hadn't seen. Mm. And, and by that, I don't mean. Um, I don't mean what most people mean when they think of that, which is people who disappoint you in terms of some sort of scandal or you know, someone's embezzling money or something. I don't mean that. I just, I mean that the sense of seeing so much inauthenticity and fakeness that, that can take place in a lot of uh, the Christian life that is not transformative at the level of just saying what it is that you actually believe rather than using words to accomplish something else. I mean, I see a lot of that. And I, I remember I, I had seen so many people that ha I had benefited from their ministries over the years. And then once I was around them and sort of knew the backstory and knew what everybody knew on the inside, I couldn't as much uh, benefit mm. from them. And I remember one time I was telling somebody the other day, um, I was about to, I was preaching somewhere and someone who was doing the music was a musician whose music had meant a lot to me since I was a teenager. I mean, mm. a lot. 
And I remember dreading that because I said, what mm. if I get there and he's a jerk? Like, you so don't want to ruin it. People. Yeah. yeah. And he wasn't, thankfully. But that, that sense of integrity, how does that hold together in Christ? And, and what does it mean to actually see oneself as standing before God rather than going along with whatever heard? Mm. I think that's a real challenge for, for anyone in, in leadership. One of these things I've heard you talk about is for leaders, oftentimes we stand juxtaposed between the fear of man and the fear of judgment and the fear of God. And that part of the task of the Christian leader is to constantly orient ourselves towards the latter, that, that we're, yeah. we're reminded that one day we're going to stand before God. And then that, that ought to therefore shape our authenticity and our yeah. integrity. And some of this, one of the things I would love the conversation to drift into today is identity politics and what seems to be the degradation of our broader identities. We, we put our faith in the Republican party or the democratic party, or we've put our faith yeah. in our identity and our success. And as those things wither away, even if it's a seminary, a certain form of doing higher education that's mm-hmm. changing, you begin to grasp for other things. And yeah. oftentimes that's not Christ. And that leads to the destruction of a lot of leaders. Are you seeing that? Yeah, I, I think so. And I think uh, one of the things, there's a poet uh, named David White, who's uh, he's not a believer, uh, but I like a lot of his work. And uh, he talks about in a book that he did on uh, called Consolations, he talks about nostalgia. And he said, when you're feeling intense nostalgia, usually it is for something that is about to pass away. Mm-hmm. Uh, something's about to change. And, and that's the, the reason that there's, and I'm a very nostalgic person, mm-hmm. but I think that there's a form of nostalgia that's not just the sense of looking back and, uh, and having a sense of gratitude or uh, longing for what's gone before, but a kind of idealizing of uh, a situation from before that isn't accurate. And I think that that can happen a lot, which is one of the reasons why you will often see, for instance, churches that are, are constantly looking backward to the way that they used to do things, not because they're conserving some uh, heritage or tradition. That's usually what we think we're doing. But instead, because they're, they're wanting to have an illusion that we used to be something, uh, sure. whatever, whatever it is. In terms of judgment, I think that when you say that we ought to be oriented toward judgment day and judgment seat, I think there are a lot of people who initially uh, draw back away from that because they think, oh, oh, well, you're talking about this very harsh view of God mm. where you're, you're sort of constantly, I'm not going to do this because I'm afraid of God at judgment. That's not what I'm talking about at yeah. all. A- as a matter of fact, it's the exact reverse. So that if you understand that you have an accountability before God and there's nothing that is hidden that will not be revealed, nothing that's in the darkness that will not be brought to light, as Jesus says, nothing that is whispered in secret that will not be shouted from the rooftops, then you understand I'm not able to hide behind this this false protective construct that I, that I build up. I can't ultimately maintain that. Yeah. So I'm, I am standing completely revealed before God, hmm. and it gives you the freedom. If you're in Christ, then you know that though you stand in judgment, the verdict about who you are 
has already been rendered at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So you, you have seen that in the resurrection of Jesus. So you're not cringing before the judgment seat. You're, you're standing before the judgment seat. But what that frees you from is a sense of building your identity on the basis of other people's opinions of you, yes. which is, it, it is just brutal for for uh, virtually every person, and they choose mm. different audiences, but 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 it's the same thing where you're you're sort of performing mm. for those people so that they will think well of you. For some people, it's it, it manifests itself in terms of maybe a parent parents' expectations of them, and for other people, it's uh, a church that they want to. They're sort of constantly. Uh, gauging their popularity there. For a lot of other people, it comes across in terms of a kind of combativeness that is a theatrical combativeness. Hmm. So you're, you're, you're constantly looking for arguments to, to be a part of. Uh, and why are you doing that? You're doing that in order to reassure yourself of something, but also to perform for an audience. That's right. Well, if you really have an understanding of judgment, you understand who you are in Christ, then what that ought to ultimately do is to free you from that to where you're in uh, the situation that the Apostle Paul is in when he writes to the church at Corinth. And he says, I consider it to be a small thing to be judged by you. Not in this sort of new agey individualist uh, sort of way. You can't, uh, nobody can, nobody can judge me. I'm going to do whatever it is. He mm. says, I don't even judge myself, but mm. instead I'm reliant upon the judgment seat of Christ, which enables you then, I think, ultimately to actually be able to be connected to other people. Yeah. So there, there's a kind of individuality that is necessary for you to actually be connected. Yeah. And what, what's happened now is we often, and I, don't, I say now, this isn't a unique uh, thing. It manifests itself in every generation just in different ways. But there's a kind of hyper-connectedness hmm. and a loneliness that happen at the exact same time. And they're not paradoxical, uh, or it is paradoxical, but they're not they're contradictory. Related. Yeah. They're related to each other. Yeah. And, and I think that's, that's one of the things that if you're going to be able to effectively lead people, you have to be able to, to extricate yourself from that. And even, I mean, you can see something of that long before Judgment Day, just in terms of looking backward on your own life. And you look backward on your own life and you, you see things that you did or you said, and you're able to say, ah, I wouldn't, I wish I hadn't said that, or I wish I hadn't done that. That's great because, because you're evaluating that and you're learning from that and you're, you're moving forward in a different way. What's dangerous is when you don't ever do that and, and you don't ever uh, look back and evaluate, you just create this image of yourself in your mind that ultimately uh, ends up to be an illusion. That's what becomes really dangerous. Yeah, I, I, 
and and I think we see some of that, which again is not new to this season and this this chapter of American history, but we see some of that you know played out every day. And it, it's it's leadership, wh- whether we're talking about politics or anything else, it's, it's leadership by poll, which is yeah. which is to not lead at all. And you know, in so much as you're constantly turning around and asking, "Is this okay?" You're you're not leading that group of people. One of the problems I think with defining leadership as influence as people like John Maxwell do is it inevitably comes. It's not that leadership or or influence is wrong, but it inevitably becomes leadership by poll because if, if, if your influence, whether or not people are following you is indicative of your faithfulness, not only does that fly in the face of a lot of what we see in scripture and the life of faithful and prophetic ministry, but it just flies in the face of what leadership is, which is so often uh, being willing to differentiate yourself from the pack. You, you've used the phrase wolf pack, but I, yeah. I think that it, we have this perfect cocktail with social media and the tribalism in the world today that you can find a pack that will endorse anything you want to say and do. Sure. Uh, you yeah. just have to have them follow you on Twitter and they'll affirm anything. Yeah, And if that's the litmus test and, and not, as you've pointed out, faithfulness uh, and obedience, then I think but we get ourselves in trouble. The reverse is true also, though, Charles, is you don't actually know who you are influencing at, at any given time. Mm-hmm. And so a, a lot of what's happening in Scripture are people who are influencing people that they don't yet know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Elijah is all by himself in the wilderness when God tells him there's a remnant and God points him toward Elisha. Paul says in Galatians 1 and 2, talking about the false teachers, I didn't yield to them for a moment, hmm. which, which you know, if you're just poll testing, then what you would have said is I can, I can sort of cow myself down to this so that I can steward my influence over the long term. And that's what a lot yes. of people do is they say, you know, you, you just look back at the people who were cowards in the pulpit during the time of Jim Crow. And almost all of them will say, well, I didn't want to get ahead of my people. I wanted to be able to steward my influence over the long term. You know, th- that, yeah. that's what you tell yourself. And, and that shows up in any sort of context. It shows up in the life of a college student who's sure. uh, trying to manage how he or she's dealing with, uh, with dorm mates. You know, that, that, that mm. shows up every time. But you actually, you don't know who it is that you are influencing. There, there's a lot of times when you're being watched from a distance that you don't know. And it's also the case that um, often the, the willingness to be lonely in the short term and, to, and to, to be on your own for the short term is itself the only way that you can actually minister to people. Because mm-hmm. eventually, people realize that you are saying whatever it is that you, uh, that, that whatever your audience that you've chosen wants to hear. Mm-hmm. Uh, eventually people see that and it's actually reassuring when you know, when you're able to cut through all of that and say, whether I, whether I agree with this word or not, I know that this person is not marketing to me, but I know this person is speaking to me yeah. as a person. I, I remember 
one of the most reassuring conversations I have ever had was with this older uh, man in ministry. And I was looking back on a decision that I'd made uh, in ministry that I regretted. I wish that I had done the opposite thing from what I did. And everybody that I would talk to would say, you're just, you're just being overly harsh with yourself. You did the right thing. And this guy said to me, yeah, let's just suppose that everything that you're saying here is true and you made a completely stupid decision. So mm. what? Now what? Yeah. <laughs> and I remember <laughs> saying, oh, you know, and it was the most liberating conversation I think I've ever had. I think that that's, uh, I think that that really is the case in terms of any form of, any form of uh, leadership. By that, I don't mean sort of this uh, posture of uh, saying whatever it is that, that one thinks, sure. you know, that, that, that sort of thing. But to where you, you honestly have the trust where people understand what he or she's saying to me is not, is not in order to, to be a means to an end of something else, to curry favor with me but is instead genuine. I think there's a lot of that that, that people are looking for uh, right now and can't find, often, yeah. sadly, even within the church. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. You, you may not remember this, but one time I was rebuked by you in your office as one of your students and, and, and one of your congregants. And I can remember, and I've told this story a hundred times to students now at Midwestern Seminary, but I can remember walking out of your office with a lump on, in my throat and a smile on my face. And I, I had that because honestly, one of the first times in my life, someone cared enough to, about me and for me to rebuke me. And I, I knew it then, and I know it more now that I, I needed to be, you know, somebody needed to address what had happened. But I felt loved in that somebody was not blowing smoke. Somebody was not being cute. I, I was dealt with directly and honestly and truthfully. And to this day, I mean, one of the reasons I, I listen to your voice when you speak is because you cared enough in that moment not to sugarcoat or cherry coat, but, but to talk straight with me. And I think that is leadership. It's the will, willingness to be able to do that. Well, I don't remember that, but I remember being rebuked by someone that I respected a lot when I was in seminary. And the way that he did it was something that I've always admired and, and wanted, however imperfectly, to emulate because he, he hit this very fine line of telling me the truth that I needed to tell without crushing me. So he mm. knew, and this guy, I could see him do this in the way that he taught. He was my preaching prof. And I could see the way that he would come in and everything that he said, anybody in that room could say, he is telling the truth. He's not flattering somebody and he's not um, being unkind, being combative. But, but he did it in a way you could tell he was constantly evaluating how broken is this reed right now? How, <laughs> how wavering is this, uh, this burning wick right now? Mm-hmm. And he knew just enough to be able to help that person without crushing that person. And he did that with me. And I remember, I remember thinking about it uh, for a long time and saying that I, that's exactly what I hope uh, to be able to do. And you're not always going to get it right. There are always going to be times when we, we misread that and we say too little or we say too much 
or whatever. But but that's a I admired that in that guy. It was just really really something that I think of, that good leaders I've noticed are are able to to do balance those things. Talk about the way of the cross for a minute. I, I was l- recently listening to a talk you gave, and that phrase comes out in your preaching and writing a lot. It's this way of the cross. And you mentioned also the just the category and experience of loneliness in leadership, and that it, that is through that, through weakness, through loneliness, uh, loneliness and, and irrelevance and obscurity and things like that, that that is the way of the cross. And And oftentimes the way of the cross is uh, there is influence, but it's unbeknownst to us. So, I mean, what what is what does the way of the cross look like in leadership? How does that shape how we lead? Uh, well, I think that that's exactly what Jesus tells us will happen when he says, "Where I am going," he says to his disciples, "You cannot follow me now, but you will follow me later." And uh, you know, sometimes we we hear that and we think all that Jesus is talking about is his ultimate destination which of course is true, but he makes clear it's not just the ultimate destination, it's also the path to get there, which is the path through crucifixion. So he, he says to Simon Peter, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and go wherever you wanted to go. But when you are old, someone will carry you where you do not want to go. Mm. Come follow me. And, and I think that's the, that's the message of the entire Bible is that uh, we join Jesus in the way of the cross. And uh, what that means is, um, it means that the way we are being discipled is cross-shaped and our, mm. our, our life ultimately is cross-shaped. That, that looks different in terms of different people. I mean, you can see that even in John 21, when Jesus says that to Peter and Peter looks around and says, well, what about this guy, about uh, John? <laughs> John. And Jesus says, that's none of your business. Well, uh, we can see what happened with uh, John, who also mm. went by the way of the cross, just a different way than, yeah. than what Simon Peter did. John was not crucified, but he was, um, he was exiled and, and by any external sort of evaluation died a failure. And I think that every successful Christian leader will die a failure. In terms of in terms of external categories, there, mm. there's some way in which you ultimately realize the plans that I had for myself are are not working out, and and that's actually God's blessing for us by by taking us out of that self determination. And, and putting us by the Spirit in the way of the cross where we start to, to realize this thing isn't driven by power and by strength. And that's a good thing mm. because if it were, then your power is only there as long as your strength is there or as long as your uh, whatever it is that your particular gift set uh, is. So I think the, the gift set, that whatever gift set that God has given to you and whatever set of expectations that God has given to you, ultimately he's going to crush in order to put back together in some other way. Yeah. And I think that's, I think that's the life of every Christian. Yeah. I, I think back to the, and I promise I don't read from a King James only uh, <laughs> Bible, but back to the judgment picture. I do think if you, you, you the axis of your life is cross-shaped, your your ultimate view and worldview is one of crucifixion that I've already been crucified, 
the yeah. worst things that could be said about me have already been said. Yeah. The best is yet to come. Does that not free us to lead? And this is part of my conviction of, of wanting to talk about leadership. It, it's not because I'm all about influence and success. It's really because if we believe the gospel, I think the church is equipped and compelled to lead in a way that only the church can lead. We're, we're the only people that can say that, that, yeah. that the best is yet to come. And yeah. the worst has been said about me. So it frees us from the, the, the idols of success and approval and acceptance and all the things that, that honestly stall our leadership, that deform our leadership, or all these matters of identity. And we're the only people with the answer to that. But if we yeah. orient ourselves to the, the kind of the eschaton, so to speak, then, then we, we really lead in radically different ways. I mean, why else would you go to the, the end of the world, leave your family, yeah. miss Easter potlucks to go reach a unreached people group? The only reason you do that is because you believe the best is yet to come. Yeah. And also if you're, I am crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live. I think there is a sense in which um, we remove a little bit of the almost literal sense of that, meaning something about my life is present in the actual crucifixion of Jesus, where mm. you have somebody who all of the uh, relevant audiences of the time have said no. The Roman Empire is the most powerful empire uh, on the face of the earth and says, mm. and not only rejects Jesus, but humiliates him and uh, makes fun of him, even in the sign that is posted over his head, even in the way that they're tearing his, his clothing. The religious establishment says no, rejects him and says he's in exile from the people of Israel to the point that uh, he has to be put outside the camp, outside the gates of, of Jerusalem. So he's rejected by all of those relevant factors. But what does he do on the cross? He is isolated. He's powerless. And he is forming community. Mm. So, But he's forming community with a repentant uh, thief in the process of being executed. So the, the very last thing that you would possibly want, he's creating community by putting his mother together with his disciple, John, saying, this is your mother and this is your son. So he's forming a family there. That's what I think happens. So I think, I think what happens in the, we all have the audiences that we want, mm. the, the people that we want to play to. And I think that God um, is faithful to, if, if, if we're being discipled, to remove those audiences from us, not in order to put us alone, but to create new, new sorts of connections that never would have happened before. So mm -hmm. Elijah uh, is, is exiled, but that's how he comes together with the widow of Zarephath and with uh, Elisha. It, you see that pattern going on all over uh, Scripture, where you had these new, these new communities forming. Peter says that to Jesus: "We've we've left everything. Uh, mm. We've left all of our families. We've left all of our futures. We've left everything to follow you." And what does Jesus do? He forms them into a new community that they would never have chosen on their own. I think that's what happens. And, and ultimately, when you look back. I think you can often see that where you're saying, here was this, this audience that meant so much to me, hmm. no matter what it was. And ultimately, 
you came to be freed from the power of uh, that person or that group's approval or disapproval. And only then were you actually able to pour yourself out in service toward some other uh, group of people that maybe would have been rejected by you before. Hmm. I've seen that happen so many times in my own life. And, and, and I know so many Christians who have. That, that, that's the pattern that God does. For those that are listening, how does that normally happen? How does one become detached or no longer codependent with some sort of group and idol like that? Obviously, this is the work of God and grace and, and part of the work of sanctification. But practically in your life, what does that look like? I think it, it usually takes um, some time. And usually what's happening is you don't know what's, you, you don't know what's happening. So you're, you're not able to just sort of track it. You just know something is coming to an end here and something new is being created here where you, you ultimately start to, to eventually realize, wait a minute, I am not, my value is not on the basis of what fill in the blank thinks of me, whoever, yeah. whoever that is. That's not, that's not what it is. Instead, um, my worth is found in Jesus Christ. You, you, you don't, mm. that's not a, primarily a cognitive thing. So it, it's not like you say, oh, I'm going to remind myself because most of it is not at the cognitive level. It's at the, mm. it's at a deeper sort of level than that. And so God will use experiences in life in order to get to that level, that Romans 5, pouring out the love of God into our hearts in a way that creates endurance and perseverance and so forth. But you, you usually do not know that that's happening hmm. until uh, much later when you, when you look back. I, I, in, in my own life, there was a ministry position that I wanted so badly early on. And it was just, I could imagine every piece of it and I wanted it so badly. And it was sort of seemed like my destiny, you know, in the mm. way we tell ourselves those stories. And I didn't get it. It didn't, it didn't happen. I was rejected for that. And I was crushed by it. And, and I was so crushed by it that I said, I'm not even going to pursue anything in ministry for a long time. I'm going to heal myself up. And so what, mm. what my thought was, I'm going to heal up before I'm able to get into ministry again. And what happened was, Maria and I visited this church. We loved the, the preaching there at the church. And so we, we joined the church. And then next thing I know, within weeks, it was, can you help us with our student ministry on a volunteer capacity? And then it was, can you be interim uh, youth minister? And then it was, can you be associate pastor? And at every point, I was terrified of, of mm. doing those things and didn't want to do those things. And now we look back and say, that was the most renewing, uh, transformative sort of time. And those people were just healing to us and, and, and shaped our lives in all sorts of ways. And we would never have chosen to go there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we never would have known those people if God hadn't diverted us to that place. And so I think about that often and say, 
um, how is God doing that in, in my life? What, what is God, where's God pulling me that mm. I don't want to go right now, but that, uh, that is for my good. Yeah. You know, I think sometimes I, I don't, I don't think you usually can see that when it's happening A best case scenario, you can see it in retrospect. And then I think there are a lot of ways that you don't ever see it until resurrection day. Uh, when you see what it is that God is doing in your life. Yeah. I think so many young men and women, uh, especially in the seminary context, there there comes a day where they realize, man, I am racked with idolatry and fear and fear of man and those sort of things. And there's kind of a, they've heard that before, but there's a self-awareness of that. And I, I think the natural response we hope is, okay, how do I crucify that and and become sanctified past that? And so often it's, believe the gospel, believe the gospel, believe the gospel, Romans five, you know, you know, yeah. that sort of thing. And, and in my experience, and, and I, I don't have a uh, coherent view on this yet, but my sense of things is exactly what you said, that it's often through crisis. Is yeah. There's heat of some kind that forces you into a dependency such that I don't think you're able to loosen your grip on those things until those things happen. Yeah, but I would, what I would say is if you find yourself where you you sense that uh, something is starting to change in, in mm. terms of those those things that you're, uh, you, you're kind of starting to feel un, unmoored and, and you don't know what's happening to yourself, I, I would say a good first start is just to notice that. Just to just to know uh, something about that. is happening, yeah. Or or to to even say, I've known a lot of people who could say, I think that I have made an idol out of success in ministry, or being combative, or being liked, or whatever. People have different points of vulnerability, whatever it is. I don't think the answer to that is to say, okay, well, here's the five-step program that you go through to disentangle yeah. from that. I think the main thing is just to say, oh, this is what's going on in my life, and to start to notice it when it's taking place to, to where you may not even resolve it at that moment, but just to start to say, oh, to what's happening here is my fear of of people, yeah. or what's happening here is my uh, clamoring for success or what's happening here is my uh, bullying domination of other people. I'm noticing this showing up. Well, often that is the way that God is is using to to subdue it because the dangerous part is when it's just unconscious to you. You, mm. you, you don't you don't really even know it or you or you say, yeah, but that's that's the way I am and and uh, that's the way I ought to be. You know, that's yeah. what's dangerous. Yeah, yeah. How would you encourage leaders that are listening to this and thinking, man, I, I, I never knew I had an issue with integrity or identity or that, that these even things were, were relevant to my leadership. How would, you, how would you encourage kind of the next generation of leaders that perhaps may need to have a renewed sense of courage, courage rooted in, in Christ? And you've talked about differentiation and, and not being part of the, 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 the pack. What does that look like? How would you encourage us? Well, I would say the first thing is find yourself in the plot line of Scripture uh, to such a way that that becomes your primary story, not the story that you're telling to yourself about your life in, in terms of, of whatever part of your life, whether it's your career, whether it's your marriage, whether it's your, your, your parenting, whatever it is. 
the story that you're telling. Find your your control plot in hmm. the pages of scripture to where you are there so often that it's able to uh, shape and form you. And, and you don't have to go in with some sort of expertise. Just be in the scripture. It'll hmm. do what it's going to do. Yeah. You, you, you don't have to know how to, you don't know how to navigate. You don't have to know how to navigate your way through. Just get into the tide of it and let it take you where it's going to, to take you. Mm. And then I would, I would just say a lot of this is done in crisis. And by crisis, I don't mean big life-changing crises necessarily. I just mean mm. those little turning points where things could go one way or they could go the other. I, I think having a sense of praying before those things happen, Lord, would you use little crises to teach me what it is that I need to know and to conform my, my psyche and my, my conscience to Christ and, and to be attentive when that happens rather than waiting for sort of a, a, a complete breakdown that, that can hmm. happen in your, in your life in order to embrace some of those things. Yeah. And then, I mean, the final thing I would say is be patient with yourself. Mm. because you, you, what God is doing in your life, most of it you're not going to see and most of it you're not going to be able to measure. Mm. And if you are able to measure it, it's probably a sign that something's gone, gone badly wrong. And what you have done is just created your identity in terms of that. Mm. So most of the time what you're going to see yourself as is a constantly repenting, constantly falling down sinner in need of, of grace. But, but what's happening is that, that God is, is shaping you and forming you more and more into the image of Christ. So be patient with that process uh, rather than saying it's, you know, if I'm not where I would have wanted to be by now, then, I mean, ultimately what happens with that is people just become disillusioned and they throw it aside. Don't, don't do that. Be, be patient with what God is doing. And so don't, don't neglect anything that God is doing, but also don't put God on a particular timetable to do it. Mm-hmm. That's so encouraging. Dr. Moore, this has been incredibly helpful to me and I trust to so many others. I appreciate you being on the Leadership Project. Oh, great to be with you. Thanks for having me, Charles. Mm-hmm. 